Hi, I'm Michael Uslan, the originator and executive producer of the Batman movie franchise. Uh, here talking Batman and talking superheroes on Superhero Stuff You Should Know. Welcome once again to Superhero Stuff You Should Know. I am the man who knows too much about Batman, Ben Juan, and with me as usual is my co-host. It's Andrew, everybody. We got a big one this time around. We've had Athena Finger on the show several times, and this is another member of Batman royalty, I would say. Indeed. And if he had his own comic book, the blurb at the top summarizing his origin story would go like this. On a cold, dark night in January 66, he made a solemn vow to bring the original Kane, Finger, and Robinson character, the Batman, to life and rid the world of the words pow, zap, and whack. <laughs> he spent a long 10-year journey to fulfill that dream, having faced many rejections from every major studio in Hollywood, culminating in the movie we know and love as Batman 89. The Batman franchise, as we know it, was literally built off this man's bloody knuckles. Neither Andrew nor I would be sitting here without him. Neither would you as the audience listening into this. He is the boy of Batman. He is Batman's Batman. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the show the man to get us the Batman franchise and the first man to get a doctorate in comic books, Dr. Michael E. Usley. Welcome. Thanks so much. And uh, and by the way, uh, just as a cautionary note to your listeners, anybody thinking of making a vow like Bruce Wayne did or I did, please make sure your parents are safe before you decide to do it. <laughs> That's always the caveat. Kids don't do this at home. That's true. It's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> oh, uh, so we are one thing that uh, we wanted to let you know is we are both technically reuniting with you as we were two of several fans who were very lucky to meet you back in 2012 at the uh, L.A. Comic Con, then known as Kamikaze. Uh, Andrew has a picture with you here <laughs> pulling up. We've met. <laughs> oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you do. Wow. I remember I both those guys. We talked about my shirt, I think, and you said you were in a Superman phase at that moment. Something like that. I remember those, some, some, that kind of exchange. Yeah, well, the greatest Superman phase I've ever had since I was a little kid and The Adventures of Superman was on TV, which, and I just idolized George Reeves as Superman. Uh, the greatest Superman moment I had was at the opening of the Comic-Con Museum in san diego and it was the opening of the comic book hall of fame and its very very first inductee that night was batman not superman oh man. and i said wow <laughs> that is so inconceivable as a kid that that could ever possibly happen that to me is like the final victory on everything i've set out to do Absolutely. That's cool. Uh, and then on my end, I both Andrew and I knew each other still at the time. It just seemed like we met you separately. But uh, I had a quick interview with you after a panel uh, that you did uh, for a site I contributed to called Batman Online. We talked briefly about the ending of The Dark Knight Rises, possible future of Batman and Justice League films, which did turn out the pan out, and about The Shadow. And uh, your son David was gracious enough to keep in contact with me so that I could share out some of these different comic to movie comparisons, including uh, how the opening of Batman 89 is influenced by Night of the Stalker, your favorite Batman story. So um, we haven't formally showed these to our main audience, but 
both this wonderful story, Night of the Stalker, uh, definitely on my top 10, uh, has both uh, this and the 89 movie feature Batman witnessing a family getting mugged. Both have Batman go after the criminals. Uh, both also feature Batman sort of playing dead at one point in order to sort of trick the criminals on that. So uh, uh, a fantastic story and, and uh, your favorite, I believe. It is still my favorite Batman story ever written. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think any other Batman story had the emotional punch of that story in particular. And what made it stand out brilliant was the fact that in the whole course of the story, Batman doesn't say a single word. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's memorable. I don't know if that's ever been reprinted. I'm not sure. You guys might know. Uh, I got to read it in one of the greatest Batman stories ever told collection, which it definitely deserves to be in. Um, and the, yeah, I think that's pretty much the only other time I think it is available. It is available digitally on DC universe infinite right now. Um, and as well as Darwin cooks, uh, remake deja vu, uh, -hmm. on it, which I still, I still enjoy, but there's, there's a magic to this one that is just, I love Darwin cook, but it just does not beat the original. They're both great though. Well, I'll tell you, um, some years back, uh, I wrote the shadow number 100 for Nikki Barucci over at Dynamite. And I did a story in that. And in that shadow story I wrote, it was it's the shadow who intercedes as a gunman is holding up a family, uh, father, ah. mother, and a young child. And um, the shadow then confronts the young ch- child amid the pearls spilling out into the uh, street. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting, different tape that goes to the heart of when I was 13 years old and Bill Finger told me that the greatest inspiration in the creation of Batman was the shadow. So this, to me, was coming full circle. And writing that story, I always felt needed to be written for whatever universe it might be in. That's awesome. Um, there's also a great comic that uh, I think comes from Steve Orlando where it, it presents the shadow as one of the many mentors who trained Batman, which I think is a, is a wonderful idea. I love that idea. Uh, to me, that's kind of in my own head canon as well. Well, these two uh, characters are tied together. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Finger liked to talk about um, how much the shadow influenced them. Of course, it was Tony Collin, publisher of the reprints of all the shadow pulps, who actually found the pulp from November mm-hmm. 1936, Partners of Peril, I have it here. That <laughs> Bill, what's the the nicest word would be borrowed the story? <laughs> uh, the case of the chemical syndicate. Mm-hmm. And as you go through that and you see the spot illustrations of the shadow, you will see the same background structures, the, the stuff lifted directly off the panels by Bob Kane mm-hmm. in Detective Comics number 27. Yeah. And it is funny because when we did our episode covering that history many people before they even clicked it were you know we we said like is batman a ripoff of the shadow and people before clicking were just like don't you mean zorro i'm like no we mean the shadow you need to listen to this <laughs> in order to find out why we mean that uh so uh it's, it's great to hear from you know somebody with a lot more authority than us to re-verify that yeah, but, but what everybody <laughs> has to keep in mind is that at the time Nobody, and I mean nobody, thought there was any sense of permanence to what they were writing or drawing. (laughs) They felt like they were drawing something that tomorrow would be like yesterday's newspaper with no value and that it wouldn't last. And it was being written for 
primarily boys eight to 12 years old, plus a couple of years later servicemen. And that uh, every four or five years, there'd be a new generation coming up and you could literally do the same stories again. <laughs> and uh, the bulk of the audience wouldn't even know it. Uh, I once had a conversation with Joe Simon, who I was very close to. Joe was one of my mentors. And I would hope your audience knows that Joe, along with Jack Kirby, Simon Kirby, uh, created Captain America. And Joe kept an enormous amount of their original artwork from over the years, an enormous amount. But I never saw the artwork of Captain America number one. And I said to Joe one day, do you know where it is? Do you know if it exists? Do you know what happened to it? And he shrugged, looked down, <laughs> he said, yeah, I know. He said, we would get the original art back from the engravers. And we would then use the original art to sop up the ink that would drip on the floor of the studio. We would take our original art that came back and put it on our boards and then use it to put our coffee cups on and Jack to mash out his cigars. And he said, we didn't know it had any value. We thought once it was printed, it was printed, and that was it. He says, that's why so much of this artwork from that era isn't around. They had no idea. They were creating a modern-day mythology. No idea they were making history at all. It, to them, it was the Depression. It was about how fast can you work to put food on your family's table and keep a roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And we, and we can see that in how Bill Finger sort of summarized Partners of Peril into just about just like six pages of uh, cases of chemical crime syndicate. So, I mean, I, I can definitely see that. It's sort of amazing what all this turned into. But, but then uh, you have to think of where he went from there. You know, you can take something, you can make it a kind of a copy of something, but look at what he started to build from there. Mm -hmm. And then as Jerry became involved, you know, the co-creation of the Joker and Penguin and um, so many great villains and Alfred and Robin. Mm -hmm. um, this just built and built and built to be something very unique, something specifically creative, way, way, way beyond in a different vein than the shadow. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so we do have, uh, we'll move into the research, I mean, not the interview that we have prepared for us, but uh, we will be basically be covering kind of the general overview of the uh, the journey it took for you to uh, bring Batman to the screen as you've uh, covered in the boil of Batman and Batman's Batman. Uh, and of course, we, our audience loves the unmade stuff, so we're titling this the unmade Batman movies, an overview, an interview with Michael Uslan. So uh, first and foremost, the burning question for hardcore Batman and Michael Uslan fans, when are we getting Captain Stingery in the Batman movies? Um, <laughs> I believe they are going to actually do this right after Twiddlebee and Twiddledum. Perfect. perfect. <laughs> so great. Uh, we had Bob Rosakis and I really came up with a great idea. And Julie Schwartz picked us apart. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, just picked us apart. So we thought Batman's never had a villain with a pirate thing. And we came up with this villain, Blackbeard. And it was, it was about modern day piracy. And Julie liked the core idea, but wanted us to really, go, and we came up with the idea 
that this was a, a really smart bad guy who mm-hmm. had watched every piece of um, film ever taken of Batman in action, who looked at every photograph and determined that one man can't be doing all of this. One man can't be that good. And based on the evidence that he put together, he was convinced that there were three different men who were functioning as Batman. One who was like the world's greatest detective, one who had incredible physique, another one who was like an incredible gymnast, you know, or chemist. And he was sure that it was three, you know, not too, not all that different from the Western hero Julie Schwartz had in the 1950s and 60s, the Trigger Twins, uh, which Uh, built back in the day. Uh, two twin brothers who were sheriffs, but they pretended to be one guy and the bad guys couldn't believe how they seemed to be everywhere at once. Um, so it was a little bit of that concept transposed onto Batman. And then Julie, <laughs> he told Bob, this character is going to be named Captain Stingaree. <laughs> so Bob called me. I was in Indiana. I said, well, he must mean Stingray. <laughs> and he says, well, that's what I thought. But he says, stingaree. I go, what the? That <laughs> is, is a stingaree. I said, that's stupid. That sounds absolutely stupid. But <laughs> it's meaning to it. And that was it. And that's what we had. So um, we did the three-parter. Um, but it was not quite the same way that we had it going in. And if I, And I want to mention, we came up with this great idea about Commissioner Gordon being trapped in a car. And if he, um, if the car went below 55 miles an hour, which was the national speed limit at the time, a bomb would go off and blow the whole thing up. Oh, man. This was way before Keanu Reeves did speed. And if you look at the whole sequence, it's like, oh, my God, you know, the whole thing was borrowed by the movie Speed, ultimately. Wow. Uh, but we, we were very, very happy with ourselves over that particular gimmick that we were using. And uh, we were thrilled that in the end, we were able to do a cameo with the Flash, because uh, that was always a character I wanted to write, even if it was only for two panels or three panels. It was fun. And it was a dream come true for me. Absolute dream come true. And one last point, if you look at the DC logo on the top middle, oh, I designed yeah. that logo. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, So there's my first Batman comic book that I wrote, a dream come true since I was eight, with a DC logo I designed. Guys, you know, as the ultimate comic book geek, uh, this this was heaven. This was a moment of heaven for me when it came out. There were a lot of smiles. There were a lot of tears when this came out. Sure. um, But that's the backstory to it. Yeah, awesome. And it's, it's, a, it's a great three-parter. Really love the sequence that foreshadowed Speed. I almost wish she, Speed didn't exist so that we could eventually see that in a Batman movie. But I know for sure when if that were to be brought up, people would be like, eh, they just ripped off Speed when the reality is this was in the comics beforehand. Absolutely true. Yep. Uh, but uh, on to the, the real questions. <laughs> so one of the big things that we do uh, is, as we told you, highlight unmade superhero films. The earliest unmade Batman movie was actually uncovered by you as you revealed in the bat boil of batman when you were working at dc and finding the dc archives evidence that the fleischers um did not just want to do superman they also moved on to batman or tried to 
Absolutely uh, correct. And um, I had a chance to read all the DC files. They had this. They had a complete budget done uh, for this. And what's interesting to me is, at first glance, when I first read this material in the DC library, and I asked Saul Harrison if I could copy it. Uh, because he knew I was a comic book historian. He said that would be fine. Um, I thought what I was reading was black and white Batman cartoons. I thought it was going to be like a cartoon show, like their Superman mm -hmm. cartoon show. But it's not true. Uh, as I looked at the budget, um, this was going to be live action. And the Fleischers doing a live action Batman based on how they had set up the lighting and the direction and everything for Superman and the, the darkness of Superman in his earliest days, couldn't be more exciting. And okay. I understand it was World War II and everything that World War II rained down on everybody's head that prevented this from happening. Uh, people were being drafted. Uh, companies were losing their staff members. They didn't have the capacity they once did. Uh, there were shortages of a lot of materials, paper shortages, all kinds of things. And it all just, you know, came together in a way that prevented this from ever ultimately happening. Gotcha. And it's a shame, too, because the Fleischers are such a big part of Superman history. Uh, oh, we could have, yeah, you know... yeah. I mean, it, it, it's one of those real fun things you know, when you're lying in bed at night trying to fall asleep <laughs> to just picture what a Max Fleischer Batman could have been. Mm-hmm. And in live action, no less. I, I think of people like uh, Alex Ross, um, what 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 this could have been. And mm -hmm. uh, oh well, yeah. The comic book industry, movie industry, are filled with tons of oh wells. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, well, uh, in your memoir, the boy the boy who loved Batman, you also bring up that you wrote a Batman script in 1979 as a blueprint for a dark and serious Batman film. Could you tell us what you remember about writing Return of the Batman and what it was about? Yeah. Now, guys, just to set the stage here, I think I wrote the first draft more like 1975. Okay. And maybe the second draft was 1979. Oh. Um, but, the, but we're going back. We're going back almost 50 years now. And... Um, to recollect what was coming out of my typewriter uh, <laughs> 50, almost 50 years ago right, is a little right. challenging. I don't have the scripts in front of me. They are in cold storage, uh, retrievable, but in cold storage. And I honestly have not read them probably since 1980 or 82. Okay. Uh, once we got Batman set up and the development process began, that became old news. It became irrelevant to what we we're trying to do at that moment in time. But here, here's my problem. My problem is I'm a kid in my 20s. You read my story. You've heard my story. I raise money privately. And then I go back to Saul Harrison, who was then president of DC Comics, and buy the rights to Batman to make into a series of dark and serious movies in order to show the world that Batman was not the joke that people were laughing at back in the 60s. He's not simply a Pazap Wham pop belly funny guy. And to show what I believe to be the true Batman is created 
in 39, the early 40s, by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, later with Jerry Robinson, uh, adding so much. And so I now buy the rights of Batman, go out to Hollywood, and I'm thinking this is going to be a breeze. <laughs> they will see all the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games and theme parks and everything else. Um, and was absolutely stunned that every single studio and mini major I went to either laughed me out of the office, told me I was crazy, or just told me this is the worst idea we ever heard. Everybody. So it's hard to understand what happened unless you allow me to set it in the context of the times. True. So point one, how does a kid in his 20s buy the rights to Batman? From today's perspective, the answer is, well, that's impossible. <laughs> it's inconceivable. But back at that time, it all ties into the same reason I met a massive wall of resistance from Hollywood studio execs and agents. Because in the 1950s, and it dripped over into the 60s, there was such a vehement, vehement, uh, rising up in society against comic books. There were articles being written. There were a lot of pontificators. There were a lot of people in churches talking about the evils of comic books. And it culminated in two things. Number one, the federal government held an investigation into comic books led by Estes Cafalva. And um, that brought the spotlight on this relatively new thing called television into everybody's living room, the evils of comic books. And then we had good old Dr. Frederick Wortham of Brooklyn <laughs> in his little clinic who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, having interviewed a hundred juvenile delinquents <laughs> and under his careful questioning, they all admitted that they had read a comic book. Aha, therefore comic books were the sole cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. There you have it. Mm -hmm. And of course, to me, what if Dr. Wortham had asked them if they had eaten a pickle? Um, we could right. have had pickles being banned across America. But what we did have, we had comic book burnings. There were comic book burnings. You can see stills and you can see some footage from mm -hmm. St. Louis to Jersey City and in various cities. You think you're watching something from Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. That's how severe this backlash was. And if it wasn't for rock and roll and Elvis Presley, comic books may have completely gone out of business and superheroes might have completely disappeared. Yeah. It was Elvis Presley's swiveling and rock and roll music that took the spotlight away from comic books and said, oh, wait a minute, this is the tool of the devil. Oh, now we got, now we got the real guy. And it, it took the whole spotlight away and gave the comic book industry under its newly formed self-censoring board, the Comics Code Authority, a chance to regroup. Call the herd and regroup. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the setting. So now I'm going to pitch to these people who were adults during the Frederick Wortham seduction of the innocent era. They mm -hmm. are all looking down their nose at comic books. Mm -hmm. Comic books? believing that at best they were cheap entertainment for little kids at worst they were possibly harmful to kids and that's who i'm pitching so 
Now I take you to a recap of insider information that I had received around the time at the, from the highest level that the reason Warner Brothers bought DC Comics was not to get DC Comics, not to get its library of characters. They wanted Superman. Mm. Because at that time, Hollywood society believed that only Superman was the IP, the intellectual property, capable of being turned from a comic book into a blockbuster movie. <laughs> In order to get Superman, they bought DC Comics. And many of them upstairs looked down their noses at that and were even a bit embarrassed that they owned a comic book. So when I go in to pitch to the studios and they all are throwing me out or telling me I'm crazy, the most positive response I'm getting, well, you know, if you want to do Batman, kid, we'll do Batman, but it's got to be that funny pot belly cow zap wham guy because that's the only Batman audiences will remember and love. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kept saying, no, no, no. They, no matter what I showed them, from the Bob Kane Bill Finger run, Detective 27 through 38, Batman number one, that introduced Joker and Catwoman, the Englehart Marshall Rogers issues from the 70s, the Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill issues, they could not get their arms or their heads wrapped around what a dark and serious version of Batman would look like as a movie. So I needed, I knew I needed to do something dramatic. And I felt I needed to write the screenplay. I needed to write a screenplay, which was a device that they could understand, that they were used to reading, that would show the tone of a much more realistic Batman and Gotham City, um, a much more realistic Bruce Wayne and Alfred in particular, a much more realistic plot line um, which for me was, it's the first time terrorism has reached the shores of America. And, mm -hmm. um, and a much more realistic villain. And I knew it could not be the villains they knew from the Batman TV series, because that would throw their heads right back onto that show all over again. Mm -hmm. That was the motivation for doing what we did. So I wrote the first draft. And then it was, let's just call it a considerable time later when I realized need a second draft. And I worked with my dear friend from Indiana University, Michael Bourne, who went on to become a very famous jazz critic and disc jockey. Um, and he's had an illustrious career. And we did a version. And this was, Robin was off to college. It was just Bruce and Alfred and Commissioner Gordon. That's the team. That's it. Bruce is now turned 50. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He's been out of it now. He's trying to enjoy life as Bruce Wayne. But with terrorism starting in America, he literally gets pulled back into it hmm. and has to be Batman again. And this time he has to fight terrorism and he can't just be Batman. He's got to become the Batman. Oh. He's got to be able to instill fear. He's got to become dark. I'm not saying he sinks to their level, but he's got to meet them on an even playing field. So as some memory cells are kicking off here and there, 
I believe in the second draft, we introduced Rajal Ghul as the guy behind the terrorism. Oh. I'd have to reread it to mm-hmm. be sure, because honest to God, I have not read these things in at least 40 years. Uh, <laughs> Taya, I believe, was in it. Silver St. Cloud, whom I love from the uh, Marshall Rogers one, was in it. Rupert Thorne was in it. Um, but it was much more realistic. But I still needed a big act three. So act three, I came up with this wild idea in the 1970s. A giant spider. <laughs> not he's, what? He's not John Peters. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, I don't see it. <laughs> you see the pizza? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't. Have you seen it? Uh, I have not. Go watch the Pizza. Okay, I okay. I know, I know so, who Bradley Cooper's playing in that. <laughs> my idea is Gotham City is like an island city like New York. And in the end, the terrorists blow up every bridge and tunnel around Gotham City, cutting it mm. off from the rest of the, uh, the state and the country. There was a giant scene of whatever I changed the name of the Lincoln Tunnel to where um you know it blows and the massive water surge is coming through with all the people in the cars in it um i remember i had a scene of batman on horseback he uh oh. he jumped onto a, a a policeman's horse and used that to get through the traffic of gotham city again in an effort um batman could not operate a regular batmobile in new york city how's he going to get from street to street <laughs> in that traffic right. you know with roads blocked off and double parking Mm-hmm. Is that he, we, we had to come up with something much more realistic and contemporary to make it all work. And finally, frustrated, he jumps on the horse at Central Park and, sh- you know, goes off. The, so these were all elements into it. Was this the Batman movie that I, since I was eight years old, is old had intended to make? No, that was not its purpose. Its purpose was to show executives and agents who we would be talking to regarding writers, directors, ultimately stars, what a dark and serious Batman could feel like, that you could do this, and this, this, is, this is it, this, this gives it to you. That was its purpose. It was a tool. It was a device to get us to where we needed to go. And it was helpful. It was helpful because I, I was finding an impenetrable wall around the brains of so many of the executives in Hollywood at the time. Um, and and that's part of what was submitted to writers like Tom Mankiewicz and Richard mm-hmm. Maybaum, along with some of the other Batman material. Plus I had written, if memory serves me, a 17 page single space type, typed um, vision statement. I don't know if you wanna call it a Bible or a vision statement maybe, mm-hmm. as to the history of Batman in comics, why he should be dark and serious, what the characters, the plots, the subplots, the devices would all look like, the villains. Um, and, and, and that was what comprised the package that we were trying to present to get somebody to say, okay, you know, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's also very foreshadowing of what we would see in the comics with the Dark Knight Returns, of course, which I'm sure a lot of you know, listeners are just like, hey, that sounds like this many years later or No Man's Land many years later or The Dark Knight Rises many years later. You were truly ahead of your time, not just with a dark and serious Batman movie, but also with the ideas for that movie or for that mythos in general. Well, I, I don't say this to take anything away from Frank Miller or, or whatever everybody's created in there. 
uh, that's certainly not my purpose here either. Um, I, I get, I had one executive at DC say, Oh my God, you know, this is dark Knight returns 10 years before dark Knight returns. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it, it was, it was only made as a device to make people understand what this character could look and feel like. And, uh, uh, we did the best we could. Um, the drafts were both written quickly. Um, but ultimately, it all paid off. I'd say so, too. With a, with a movie we all sort of... Everybody who's part of this podcast as well as listening to it really loves the Batman 89 movie. We know because we look at the numbers and whenever we cover the, the first... Uh, any version of 89, whether it's like a previous script like Mankiewicz or... Uh, you know the earlier Sam Ham drafts; it all shoots up in the numbers. So that's that's definitely the one that our audience um, really loves and enjoys. You know, originally, the only thing we had as our role models to create a blockbuster kind of film was the Bond films. Mm. Uh, and if you go back to when this whole thing began, like when I started writing the draft around '75. And then we started pitching in se- when I bought the rights to Batman with Ben Melnicker in 79. Um, it was Bond. It was yep. Bond. And we looked at all the Bond movies. I was a huge fan. I had read all the books as well. And I said, there are two writers of Bond movies who are, as far as I was concerned, a league above everyone else. Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Maybaum. They just did extraordinary work. And I said to Ben, you know, we should go after assembling like the best of the Bond team to bring Batman to the screen, a serious version of Batman. So Ben had worked at, you know, Ben was the former executive vice president at MGM during its Tiffany years. Um, all divisions reported to Ben. He was chairman of their film selection committee. He was on the parent board of Lowe's. Um, he started out as general counsel. Uh, became head of their antitrust division, uh, personally negotiating with the Attorney General of the United States, the Paramount Consent Decree of 1948. He appeared before the Supreme Court with famous lawyer Louis Neiser. Uh, I mean, Ben is legendary, legendary in the business. And um, what we wanted to do, what, what we wanted to do was to get the best of the Bond team. So Ben said he had worked on movies at MGM with Ken Adams. Ken was the production designer on Goldfinger and other Bond movies. Mm -hmm. So Ben reached out to Ken Adam. He also, I remember, reached out to Bill Tuttle, who was always doing uh, MGM makeup and special effects makeup, anything they did in England or Europe, and ultimately uh, a lot in the U.S. as well. Um, And then Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, Mm -hmm. was our initial first choice for director. Uh, Tom Mankiewicz, you know, you do a little research and you find out he was the guy who everybody was actually given the real credit for Dick Donner's Superman and Superman 2. Mm-hmm. Known as the script doctor, um, he was probably more than just the doctor. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and a lot of people in the know credit him with that. Plus, mm-hmm. of course, he had an illustrious uh, family, uh, Hollywood oh. family that mm-hmm. he, uh, he was part of. So um, we heard back. We had an initial conversation with Richard Maybaum. Ben was working with his agent on that. Maybaum loved the material he sent him. Um, 
And don't ask me what, but things kind of stalled a bit with the Maybaum discussion. And meanwhile, things progressed very rapidly with the Mankiewicz discussions. And Tom really, really wanted to do this after Superman. He really wanted to do it. And um, one of the best experiences I've had in my career working with a writer was with Tom. He was, he was terrific. He was open. He wanted to be schooled in everything, Batman. Mm -hmm. He would call me and say, well, would, would Bruce Wayne do this? And what about that? Where did uh, this come from? And mm -hmm. um, uh, we had many, 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 many meetings and correspondences together as this was being developed. Um, it was a very, very happy time. Uh, I, I knew I was privileged working with a guy like that. Mm -hmm. um, but th that's how that's how it all kind of got its start in terms of getting the piece together. Those and then we set it up at Casablanca Records. Um, after having been turned down by all the studios, all the mini majors, uh, very, 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 very frustrating for me. Yeah. All the rejection, the rejection, the rejection. Uh, but then said, you know, Michael, there's a there's a young guy who's much younger than the people we've been pitching to, and he's at Casablanca Records with Neil Bogart, and I just got a call from um, the former head of 20th Century Fox, who is now involved with Polygram of Europe, and he said they're they're getting a cash infusion to do feature films, mm -hmm. and he's younger and more hip, and and they get this where the other uh, people did not. So um, he wound up getting Peter on the phone and I pitched it over the phone from New York. And he mm. said, wow, this sounds really terrific. Something very, very new and different. Uh, can you be in my office tomorrow? And I said, I can't, but I can be there the day after tomorrow. So we flew out to LA and it was um, then and me with Peter and his uh, head of development and production, a wonderful man named Barry Beckerman. And um, we, we just had a great creative discussion. They, they got what I was pitching. They understood it. They went through all the materials. Um, it was around that time I did that 17-page uh, vision statement. Um, and, uh, and they said they would develop it. And they had an output deal with Universal Pictures. So it would be a Universal Picture meaning it would have major distribution worldwide, which was critically important for our purposes. And it just seemed like every, it was one-stop shopping and everything would be there. They put up the development money and uh, no sooner did we do that than uh, Magnets came aboard and started working with Tom and, um, and then began a parade of directors uh, over the years. And if you had told me at that moment that the development hell of the first Batman movie would take 10 years. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I would have done. Um, <laughs> 10 long years. I always call it my human endurance contest. And, uh, and that's what it was. 10 years of rejection, 10 years of stall. Um, it's a tough thing to live through. Test your metal as a human being. And, when Tim Burton came aboard around 1986, everything changed. Everything changed. Mm -hmm. And um, next thing was Sam Hamm. Next thing was, thank God, my dear friend, who's no longer with us, Anton First. And uh, and magic started to happen. And Definitely. If, there's, if, if there's 
anyone I credit most of all, it's Tim Burton, this young genius who had what I always refer to as the big idea. And it was a big idea. It was the big idea. And it was, if, it, if we're going to do the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie and don't want to get unintentional laughs from the audience, mm-hmm. this movie cannot be about Batman, which I, I almost passed out when he said that. <laughs> and he said, no, this movie has to be about Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. And that made all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is, that big idea not only propelled Batman to revolutionary success in a way that would change Hollywood forever, change the comic book industry, change the entire world's perception of comic book superheroes and supervillains, but it would it would go far, far beyond that by opening up the door to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. Think about it for one moment. Here comes Iron Man. Here comes Spider-Man. Look at those movies. They should really be called Tony Stark and mm. Peter Parker. They are following the big idea of Tim Burton. And Tim's impact and influence is still felt to every weekend when a new genre picture opens up, as is Anton First's visionary design work. It's mm-hmm. still influencing and impacting every movie that comes out in a genre. Um, it was, it was amazing. And Tim had a corollary. The corollary to the big idea was world building. From the opening frames of this movie, 1989, audiences had to immediately believe in Gotham City. They had to suspend that disbelief and believe in this city because if they didn't, they would never buy a guy getting dressed up like a bat and chasing around a guy who looked like the Joker. Mm -hmm. It was that critically important. And he said, Gotham City must be the third most important character in this movie. Mm. And there you have it. It's the big yeah. idea and the corollary. Oh, I mean, it's it was fantastic, of course. And to us, like the Anton First, Nigel Phelps, Julian Caldo, that entire team, what they created with Gotham City and the designs, that is Gotham to us. I mean, partially because it's the first version that we saw. But that is like, to this day, the one where just like, yeah, that is Gotham City. And, you know, we enjoy other versions of it. But whenever we come back to the 89 movie, we're just like, no, that's that is our baseline. That is our foundation. Uh, as My for perspective a lot of us, is this. Gotham City is like New York or Shanghai or London. There are different parts of it that look completely different from other parts of it. Mm-hmm. And so that in my mind, I can see Burton's Gotham City, Nolan's Gotham City. Um, I can see Matt Reeves' Gotham City. Um, as different sections, different sections of the same city. So um, I'm, I'm willing to buy it. Yeah, uh, we we did an episode talking about the different Gotham cities and how, you know, in the Nolan trilogy, it's filmed in different places. And, and some people thought like, oh, you should have you should have separated them out and that type of thing. But I always kind of saw it as just like, well, you're just it's such a big city. You're in different areas of it in each movie. Uh, and that stuff that you kind of have to it's all part of the same universe you buy that it's it's that expansive and that you just get to see different parts of it in each movie um, yeah anybody but, who's been in any of the three cities or four cities i just named they understand <laughs> <laughs> right 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 definitely okay we're moving on uh you got the concept art ready uh ben uh yeah 
All right, so this is concept art from one of the featurettes on the Batman 89 DVD and Blu-ray with concept art by Marshall Rogers. How influential was the Rogers Englehart arc? Do you happen to remember where any of this came from? Yeah, sure. Marshall sent this to me. Um, he sent this to me. This was he, he was auditioning to get a uh, storyboard uh, artist role in the film. And he said, this is how I, I would picture uh, the opening of the movie. Now, this was, he did not see a script. Mm -hmm. This was, mm -hmm. he, he was just doing this of his own imagination. I love this. I yeah. adore this. And I said to him, this is absolutely spectacular. I love exactly what you've done here. And I showed it to everybody. I showed it to everybody. And, uh, um, and, and everybody's reaction was, okay, this is really cool. Again, one more little piece of a puzzle to uh, to let the world know that you can do something like this in a serious way mm -hmm. and in a dark way and in a stylistic way. So, um, yeah, so this is what Marshall had sent me. It's fantastic. Uh, and, I, and I also was surprised, too, at the date of it, because uh, as you said, it, there was no script when I first saw this. I'm just like, oh, like that's something that they were toying, you know, Burton was toying around with. And then it said circa 1980. And was like, yeah, oh, this well, that's way before. before. <laughs> this was years, it was years before Tim Burton down came into the picture. Mm -hmm. uh, this was just something he sent to me. And this is even before Mankiewicz, I'm guessing. This is before. Uh, well, I mean, his, uh, his first draft is dated around. I don't remember exactly the timing on that. Mm -hmm. um, could have been around the same time, but one wouldn't have had anything to do with the other specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, um, I just thought this was so damn good. It's great. Yeah. No, we're, we're big fans of the Marshall Rogers art and the arc itself uh, from Engelhardt. And, and um, you know, there's uh, there's an obvious influence on the Mankiewicz script, too, because of the characters of Rupert Thorne and, and Silver St. Cloud and stuff. And so I thought, you know, it's well, but, yeah, first... but that that was a result of what material I gave Tom. Of course, mm -hmm. to operate off of. And, mm -hmm. and it was those three different runs of Batman. that we had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can certainly see the the influence. Um, now, one of the things that uh, Mankiewicz's script sometimes gets connected to, uh, and I know you you've been on record debunking this, so I'd like to debunk it again. Some people believe that Tom Mankiewicz's script is the one that would have been turned into the Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Batman and Robin comedy. But as somebody who's we've read the script, we know that was not a comedy. The Tom Mankiewicz script it had certain things that were funny every now and then, but it was very much a dark and serious thing. Um, and I know you've also said, I found an article from Yahoo where you brought up that they kind of did not really consult you on this idea of, of the, the Murphy and uh, Bill Murray uh, idea of Batman and Robin. But can you sort of speak to that in terms of th they were not connected? They were not connected. Thank you. Tom was working off of Bond and Superman, right? Mm -hmm. Both of which he was personally involved in. So when you mm -hmm. think of not the Roger Moore Bond, but the more serious Sean Connery Bond, mm -hmm. but there were still those moments and the bits of dialogue in the Sean Connery Bond that were funny mm -hmm. and were meant to be moments of humor, meant to be moments of lightness, meant to make people laugh. It wasn't just straightforward adventure and spies. There was more to Bond than that. 
mm-hmm. one of the reasons that it appealed to women as much as men. So you had that part of it. And then if you go back and look at the first two Superman movies, especially the first one, Krypton sequence is very serious tone. Mm-hmm. Smallville sequence is a very serious tone. But the second he puts on that costume in Metropolis, it's a lighthearted kind of tongue-in-cheek thing. And you've got Otis and you've got Miss Desmacher and you've got Superman rescuing a cat in a tree and looking at <laughs> Lois Lane's underwear. And, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's very, very light. Yeah. Very light and fluffy. Um, and it worked. You're talking about massive successes with, with the Bond style and the, you know, Chris Reeves Superman. So Tom was looking to capture all of that in Batman, which he knew Batman had to be more serious a character, um, certainly more Bond-like than um, Superman was, but a darker character, but that there was still plenty of room for that kind of humor in those kind of moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody knew better than to let me hear that somebody was thinking of Eddie Murphy or, <laughs> or um, right want, yeah. as, as we say nobody would want that source so no I was not involved in any discussion of that whatsoever mm-hmm. yeah it always seemed to me as something that was based off of what I read and had heard seemed like it was just a, like an idea that might have been floated around for like a day and not something that was actually like an evolution of the Mankiewicz script, which a lot of people seem to have attributed to because I think they get a lot of the drafts mixed up and, and what was what. Um, and I think it's also from people who just didn't have the opportunity to read the Mankiewicz script. Um, well, here, here's another thing I've noticed over the years that gets bollocked up. Yep. You know, you have so many meetings over the years, and this is before Zoom and before computers and before social media and before cell phones. So there were lots and lots and lots of in-person meetings. Mm-hmm. And in these meetings, there's at least one person taking notes. Sometimes several parties are taking notes. Often there is a young person who's brought in by the studio or by this company or that company specifically to take notes. Lists are exchanged of writer's list, a director's list, an actor's list, doesn't mean they've been made an offer or that it's seriously (laughs) being considered. And um, I think every actor who was ever mentioned in a meeting as a throwout or appeared on anyone's actor's list has historically been said, oh, they were offered the role of Batman first, (laughs) or they were offered the role but then it went to this other guy. That, then it went to Nicholson, and this one went to Keaton. Yeah, you know, m- most of that, the vast majority of that, these are just names that are tossed around. And yeah, maybe somebody said, well, call his agent, Harry, uh, over at CAA. See, you get an idea what his availability is. Mm-hmm. Uh, bounce it off of uh, that guy's agent at William Morris. See if he laughs at it or if, he, <laughs> if it's something that might be viable. You know, and that stuff happens too doesn't mean that everybody signed off on it everybody's agreed to it it's it's information gathering it's exchanges of ideas back and forth and and i think a lot of that has been mishmashed together incoherently uh coming up with uh results that are not really historically accurate yeah definitely uh we have you know 
more questions to continue. But uh, as usual, around this hour uh, or so into the episode, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back. Hi, it's me, Jeremy Parrish, co-host of the Retronauts podcast, the only video game history podcast that's been around so long, it's also a part of video game history. Every week, one of the motley rabble who hosts this show leads a deep dive into the past, whether it's to break down a classic franchise, learn more about a timeless game from its creator, or just wallow in nostalgia. Relive history with Retronauts, here on the HyperX Podcast Network. Do you like the TV show Friends? Then check out Watching Friends with me, Mark, and me, Ryan, every week as we go through every episode of this iconic TV show, giving you behind-the-scenes facts, our thoughts on every scene, and some personal stories. Do you know which actor can't remember how many seasons of the show there are? How about the one common household object that could never be seen on the show? We've got the answers and more as we explore Friends in-depth every week. Watching Friends, only on the HyperX Podcast Network. Find inflation the old-fashioned way, by spending less money. Check out the HyperX store at Amazon.com to find great Prime Day deals on July 12th and 13th. Stock up on new gaming gear so you'll be equipped for the new launches and content drops. Mark your calendars and set your alarms. Deals like this won't stick around long. Class is back in session, and HyperX has the grade A gear you need for dorm life, remote classes, and for schooling folks online. Shop the HyperX back-to-school deals going on at HyperX.com to help make your return to student life a breeze. Comfortable cloud headsets can help keep you focused in as you cram for finals with some lo-fi beats and stay productive with lightweight pulse fire mics, responsive alloy keyboards, and more. Keep your GPA and your KDA high with HyperX products and accessories. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. It's back to school time. We want to make sure you pack the essentials to have the best gear yet. The Manscaped fourth generation performance package is just that. Be ready for whatever it is in your daily schedule this year. It's the perfect package for your package and includes the brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Fellas, go for the valedictorian of balance. Ball trimming and join the six million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com with the code Johnson's Ballsack. Yes, that's a real code. <laughs> 100% real. Yes. So, this is apparently the part in the ad read where I tell you about hurting my balls while trimming below the waist. The thing is, I haven't because I've never hurt my balls <laughs> <laughs> through it while using Manscaped. Me, personally, that's not to say that you can't. I'm just saying that I haven't myself. So, thanks to Manscaped, I don't have a story to share on. Yeah, uh, I one time shaved my sack without <laughs> without Manscaped, and it didn't end up well. Actually, my roo- my roommate had to clean up the mess because I was in college and forgot about it. But anyway, that's a side. That's a, <laughs> I was young I once. You with that. <laughs> I was young once. But yes, you want to keep in the bush. To keep it, to keep in your underoos, keep 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 your package in the underoos. All right, you gotta Indeed. have it looking looking good down there. You know what I'm saying? And seem big. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> School is back, and the performance package 4.0 from Manscaped is here to teach the boys a lesson on male hygiene. Inside, you'll find a lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver, ball deodorant, <laughs> crop reviver toner plus two free gifts, performance boxer briefs, and the Shed Travel Bag. 
This package includes the brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and will give you the confidence to do anything you desire, including showing off your dick. <laughs> new year, new you might screw around and attend Smooth Balls University this fall. Wait, is that a thing? This fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic braid, sorry, blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. It also allows you to shave your pencil down and customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes one to four. As you guys can probably tell, we did not write this. <laughs> we, I mean, these are the most fun ads, though, dude. Yeah. Um, all right, so the Lawnmower 4.0 has also has a 7,000 RPM motor and a new multifunction on-off switch that can engage a travel lock and gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. So if you're needing to shave your balls in the dark, they the got you in the bad cave, <laughs> always on brand. Uh, please use the LED spotlight. Hmm. And uh, did I mention it's waterproof as well? So if you want to shave in the dark, underwater. In Atlantis. In Atlantis, if your bat cave is also in Atlantis, <laughs> Double power. There, you, there you go. I mean, they got you yep. covered. What can I say? Indeed. That's what Aquaman 2 is about. So this package also comes... <laughs> I'm going to say legally we, it's not that, but... <laughs> yes. <okay. laughs> that package... was commentary. <laughs> yes. Uh, this package also comes with a weed whacker to chop your worst weeds up top in both your nose and your ear. The weed whacker is also waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. This nose and ear hair uh, this nose and ear hair trimmer provide proprietary skin safe technology, which helps prevent nick, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. After trimming your pubes and cleaning your holes, show them some love with the Manscaped liquid formulations, the Crop Preserver, Ball Deodorant, and Crop Reviver Ball Toner are here to get you ready for class during the day and ready to party at night. And again, when you party at night, you could at night be shaving your balls just fine because it has a light on it. Mm -hmm. And also, I did have a friend, <laughs> speaking of ball deodorant, I had a friend one time that's going to remain nameless that did spray <laughs> cologne on his dick, and it hurt. It was a bad idea, he said. So you don't want to do that. You need deodorant, especially made for your balls. Indeed. And that's where they're here for, guys. Mm-hmm. Manscaped also threw in two free gifts to the Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. One is a comfy front pack for your balls, and the other is a backpack for your goods. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code Johnson's Ball Sack. And I'm telling you, it's real. We've yep. had a lot of people talk about this, asking, <laughs> and it's 100% real. Uh, we wouldn't be doing these actual official ads if mm -hmm. it wasn't real. But so, yeah, 20% off plus free shipping with the code Johnson's Ball Sack at manscaped.com. Take the last line, Ben. This year, graduate with a degree in clean balls from Manscaped. And welcome back, and we are going to continue our conversation with uh, Michael Uslin about the evolution of the Batman movies uh, and some of the rest of our questions are about sort of what happens once the movie is, is starting to get into production and stuff so over to Andrew. Alright so 
do you happen to remember at all why the Batman or the Bat suit in '89 was given the additional points on the insignia? I think that was just Tim and Bob Ringwood. Uh, okay. I, I I don't think it was anything bigger than that. You know, Tim was not growing up a big Batman fan or a mm -hmm. big comic book fan. And I was surprised when I met him for the first time. And then I had to indoctrinate him into that world, <laughs> you know, giving him the material that would show the dark and serious Batman and keep him away from Bat Genie, Bat Robot, the super Batman and Planet X and all of that other stuff. Right, right. Um, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think it, I think it, I'll go further. I'll say Tim, Anton, and, uh, and Bob Ringwood. And you also have to keep in mind in the context of its time that the level of merchandising intensity, licensing intensity, had not yet peaked mm. like the modern day peak of movie licensing. Mm. And I don't think too many people were focused on the need to have a unified symbol um <laughs> that everything had to follow right. a specific style book or guidebook i think that that was part of an evolution in, in its earliest days mm -hmm. um you had um licensing corporation of america lca transitioning into warner brothers products or whatever it's called consumer products um there were a lot of changes being made new people coming in and and as these branded franchise properties began to develop more and more, especially with Batman and post-Batman, there was a lot more emphasis then on branding and marketing and things like that. So yeah, you would say from today's perspective, that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense, but you know, in 1988, mm. it was a different world. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah, so we were curious about without, without speaking to some of the mm. uh, folks who were in the licensing department back then, mm -hmm. that's about the best response I can give you um, but, but I can call up a couple of old buddies who were over there at the time and get a little bit, uh, of insight from them, uh, if there's more to the story than that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there have been some rumors about like, they had copyright issues of the insignia, but I'm just like, well, that doesn't really make sense when it was on the poster, but I, I don't know how it works. Uh, so we were just curious if you had, um, remembered in any way about that. Um, yeah. But, I, I just, I just think nobody really super focused on mm -hmm. the need for it to be the one thing mm -hmm. um, i think by the maybe with the marketing campaign mm -hmm. uh they did and uh dc had a right to approve the marketing campaign mm -hmm. um so uh again uh i'm happy to call a couple of old buddies and see if they have any sure. recollections from the marketing and the licensing mm -hmm. side of it um but that, as far as i can recall that's that's all it was. It was those three guys coming mm -hmm. up with something that they like. Awesome. Cool. Um, Isn't it terrible when the answer is not like the big thing <laughs> you hope that it was? Well, well sometimes okay. I prefer it. Sometimes we prefer it because we would rather have the truth come out than some sort of clickbaity esque like, oh, this rumor because like we've had like a couple weeks ago on this podcast, we had Daniel Waters who did the he wrote Batman Returns. And we had him start off saying Max Shrek was never Harvey Dent. There's this internet rumor saying that Christopher Walken's part was originally Billy B. Williams as Harvey Dent. And when Catwoman kills Shrek, it was actually supposed to scar Harvey. And none of that is true. It was not in any of the scripts. And so we're just like, Daniel, could you please just just put it on the record so that we put that out there? Because there's just, there's so much stuff out there. I also remember 
uh, I was at one of the panels where you specified like you're talking as a fan, not as a producer, but you would have loved to have seen Eastwood doing Batman Beyond as old Bruce Wayne. You would have loved to have seen Keaton and Nicholson going at it as the Dark Knight Returns. And I remember when I wrote that for Batman Online, I specified like you were saying that as a fan, just like the rest of us. However, I think maybe it was a later panel or somewhere else. You might have said the same thing. And I saw all these articles being like Batman producer wants Michael Keaton for Dark Knight Returns. I'm just like, that's not quite what he said. Like, it's not yeah. a movie that's in development. That's just something that he said would be cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's something that bedevils all of us. Yeah. Uh, where you know, you're crystal clear with it. Mm-hmm. And you say, now I want to make sure nobody goes on the internet and says this because that is not what was against it, but <laughs> it does. And mm-hmm. they, they do it. And um, yeah, everybody knows that kind of happens and it's out of everybody's control. Yeah. My favorite is when people say, there's a four hour cut of that movie. Like, yeah, there's a four hour cut of every movie. It's, <laughs> it's called an assembly, assembly cut, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. yeah. I've, I've been hearing about the. Uh, the original 16-hour cut of uh, Batman and Robin that Joel did. <laughs> 16 hours? <laughs> we under this, yeah. Yeah, let's <laughs> not get that series. one started. <laughs> oh, man. It's too late. Comicbook.com yeah. has already written about it. There was a longer this. cut of this movie, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's every movie. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I thought was really cool now in context, uh, you know, 10 years later since it's released in The Boy Who Loved Batman, you talk about how the idea of a dark and serious Batman can be encapsulated just from adding the word the in front of Batman. Uh, and I, I'm, it must be vindicating to finally have a movie with the title The Batman in, uh, in 2022. Um, and I was curious if there was at any point, you know, it's called The Batman in the Tom Mankiewicz script and some of the other treatments that were written between then and, and Sam Hamm. Was it some sort of discussion at some point to just make it just Batman? Was there a point where you had to let go of the the because there was already an understanding it was going to be a dark version? Like, uh, I was just curious if there was ever a point where we could have gotten the Batman's the title in 89. I went to back into some old files uh, not long ago and found that the first time I uh, mentioned to the studio how we need to do a movie showcasing Batman as the world's greatest detective. And that was the end of 89 that I wrote the first note about that. So I had to wait 33 years right. <laughs> and to be able to sit here and say that it was worth the wait. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell fans when they go crazy, when they hear of some casting event, um, whether it's Michael Keaton, oh my God, a comedian is playing Batman and it's being directed by the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's going to be the biggest comedy of all. You're going to destroy this character forever until they see the movie. And then they always want Keaton to play Batman. And they always (laughs) want him to direct Batman. And we had the same thing with um, when Heath Ledger was announced as the Joker. Oh my God, this is horrible. You've hired a gay cowboy to play the Joker and he's going to ruin this forever until they see it. Mm-hmm. Um, ben Affleck, same thing. Um, 
more recently you had, oh, the Joker movie is going to glorify gun violence and glorify violence. And it is going, it, it is the antithesis of until you see it mm-hmm. and you realize it's the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, you get this all the time. You get this all the time. And I like to tell the fans when uh, when I'm speaking at conventions or universities, don't simply look at which actor is being cast. Look at the filmmaker. That's where this all starts. And you have to look at the filmmaker and say, and and do you have a right as a fan to bitch and moan? Of course you do. I'll, I'll go further than that. You have a responsibility to do it. But after you see the picture. Yes. It's the only caveat I put on it. But look at the filmmaker. Do you believe the filmmaker has an understanding and knowledge of the character? Do you believe the filmmaker has a love for, a passion for this character? Do you believe from what you've heard, what you've read, that the filmmaker has a specific vision for this character, this story? And if so, do you believe from his or her prior work that he or she is capable of executing that vision. And then if you do, you kind of have to put all your stock in the filmmaker and the filmmaker's love for the character and understanding the character um, in terms of the casting. Chris Nolan's casting was always out of the box. Mm-hmm. He never cast the, the obvious. Um, Annie Hathaway playing Catwoman, how could that possibly be pulled off? That was and another one that got a lot of pleasure. fan heat. Yeah. Uh, and you start looking up and down the line. Uh, his casting was never the obvious. Never the obvious. Mm-hmm. And it was great. I mean, it was just great. But I, th- I think that's part of it. You, you really, you can't just look isolated in a box at an actor hired to play a character. Pattinson mm-hmm. had the same thing. Without people understanding what the vision was, it was a Batman relatively just starting out, a younger guy. He's not yet this dark knight. Mm-hmm. He's in the process. He's evolving. He's making mistakes. He's getting hurt. The villains are all out there, but most of them are still young. Their personas are still evolving. The Batmobile is still evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see it and you understand the vision for the filmmaker, that all the casting becomes brilliant. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's always been that's always been one of the things. And uh, yeah, there are times I thought they were going to surround the studio with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, by waiting to see it, I think it solves most of the problems. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So over the years, we've gone over several unmade Batman movie scripts, Darren Aronofsky's and Frank Miller's Year One, Akiva Goldsman's rewrite. Of, Kev, of Andrew Kevin Walker on the original Batman vs. Superman script and a project that you've described as your white whale, a Batman Beyond movie written by Paul Dini and Alan Burnett. Do you have any memories of reading these or did they keep you in the dark about these until Chris Nolan came along for Batman Begins? Oh, no. Uh, no, I was in the thick of it. Um, we had, uh, I, I believe, Sam... Sam Dickerman was the um, production exec on the Wolfgang Peterson Batman Superman project. And I must have had, I 
like you know, 15 meetings with Sam and uh, um, talking about the drafts and casting and situation. Sam, Sam was terrific. Sam was terrific, and mm -hmm. he understood um, the characters very, very much. Um, it, it was a good relationship while that was percolating. Um, Paul Dini, I thought, had written a really good script for Batman Beyond, and um, a director was attached, and um, I think it might have just been the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, it was a different world. It was a different industry at that time. And um, I think we, are, we all may be best served by that not having co-opted any opportunities for the future, <laughs> you know, back then. Um, uh, but Paul did a, did a stellar job with that. Um, the Darren script, um, there were certain scripts, and I, I don't want to go into uh, name any specifically, that were less Batman-ish as a comic book geek like me would know and recognize Batman. Um, I always understood filmmakers who had distinctive visions for it and ways to take it. But the fact that I am rooted in fandom, that I am a fanboy, that I'm one of, I think, two people left standing who met Bill Finger, who told me when I was 13 years old how Batman exactly was created, who had as a mentor Jerry Robinson, um, who knew and worked with Bob Kane, and knew and dealt with Lou Sayer Schwartz, one of the great um, Batman ghost artists for Bob, Shelley Moldoff, uh, my God, the list will go. Joe Giella, the, the list will go on and on and on and on. Neil, of course, mm -hmm. uh, the writers over the years from Bill to Denny and back again. So, you know, my love for Batman and my appreciation for Batman is so rooted in the comic books, so rooted in the comic books that I sometimes would be a little unnerved if it went too far afield from that. Mm -hmm. um, why create something out of whole cloth if it has virtually nothing to do with the original character? Okay. Um, I thought they were making a big mistake with Catwoman. Yes. Because that has <laughs> virtually nothing to do with 50 years of the history of the character. Mm -hmm. um, you know? Would you have pitched Manic it like Blade Runner meets Batman, basically? As Batman Beyond? Yeah, Batman, it's, the Batman Beyonds. The, would you have, was kind of the idea if you got into actual pitch sessions, like you were going to, like your quick, uh, you know, elevator pitch was this is Blade Runner meets Batman? You mean way back when, when I uh, brought up to somebody the concept of a Batman Beyond movie? Yeah, like to, to kind of explain if you had to get into a room and explain to other producers, like you were doing years before with Burton with the with the first with the first Batman, like people oh, sure. way, trying to wrap back. people's heads around it. Yeah, yeah. All right, way back when, folks. Let's make it clear: this is not today. This is not about anything happening today. This is something decades old. Decades old. I went in and I and I said, Batman Beyond is about. 
Bruce Wayne in his eight, turning 80 with a cane who becomes the Obi-Wan Kenobi of a young man who becomes the next Batman. It is a Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> Period. That, that's the pitch. Okay. Okay. Got Period it. Period. End of story. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, so wrapping sort of heading towards the end here, uh, we have sort of a non-Batman question, though still very tangentially related, which is The Shadow. Uh, as someone who has worked on a Shadow movie, who personally knew Walter Gibson, uh, one thing that I wonder about is, do you feel like there is a challenge to adapting The Shadow in the 2020s with the risk of people not knowing any better and just thinking, oh, they just ripped off Batman? That The Shadow ripped off Batman? I'm, I'm saying for people who don't know anybody, because as, as I said earlier, we did an episode about how Batman was a ripoff of, of the shadow in the early days. And people were just like, who's this? Don't you mean Zorro? Like they just were not familiar with the shadow. So I, I was wondering if you feel like there's a challenge to adapting the character of the shadow these days with people, you sort of the risk of people thinking like, Oh, he's just, he's just a Batman ripoff and they don't know any better. They don't we know had that story. solved. Um, I had the rights to the shadow <laughs> and for several years, Sam Raimi and I developed it at one of the studios. Mm -hmm. We had a uh, very, very, very good first draft script by a wonderful writer, Siavash Farahani. And um, there were several decisions that had to be made up front. Number one is, is this a period piece? And everybody said the shadow intrinsically, if you're going to honor the integrity of the character, it's got to be set in the late thirties, early forties. Absolutely. Late 40s. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was, that was a no brainer. Number two, um, if we're going to do it, we don't want to be constrained by the, biases and prejudices of the 30s and 40s. Back then, it was World War II, mm -hmm. and the shadow had a lot of dealings in Chinatown and in the opium dens of Chinatown, yeah. mm -hmm. and one of his great villains was Shawan Khan, a descendant of Genghis Khan. We wanted to stay away from all of that. Mm -hmm. So we selected as the villain a uh, character known alternatively as the Prince of Evil uh, and as Mr. Remorse. Um, and it was a really, really good, intricate, but clear plot. Then we had to decide which shadow are we doing? Are we going to do the radio, the dramatic radio version of the shadow with Lamont Cranston and Margot Lane about a guy who learned to cloud men's minds in the Orient? Or right. are we going to do Walter Gibson's shadow from the pulp magazines? Or are we going to do the shadow like the DC comic books, which I wrote for, for Danny O'Neill. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity in the seventies to write the shadow meets the Avenger. It was the first crossover ever. Um, and another issue and was slated to write every other issue of that DC series when everything kind of imploded at DC. Um, and we were just about to start work on a black and white shadow magazine that would be R-rated and would oh. tell in 68 pages the origin story of the shadow 
as cold from the pulps. Mm. And what we decided was we were going to primarily do the pulp version of the shadow with heavy influences from the comic book version of the shadow, which was heavily influenced by the pulp version of the shadow. <laughs> but like the radio show, we would give more of a role to Margot Lane and have her not a damsel in distress, but as one of his really effective agents who were out there. And we would have some fun with the agents and who the agents are. So um, that's what we set out to do. And ultimately, in between the screenplay and the next draft of the screenplay, we had a meeting with a studio exec who said, well, the script's great, but we all know that period pieces don't sell. So I looked at him and said, well, what about Titanic? <laughs> so that's different. I said, why is it different? He said, that's history. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. What about Indiana Jones? He said, well, that's different. I said, why is that different? Uh, uh, well, it's Spielberg. Uh, Grasping at those straws. And so the project died. And so the project died. And then as soon as Captain America, the first Avenger came out, set in World War II, mm -hmm. I called them up. I just said, what about Captain America? <laughs> um, but, it, but ultimately, it, it, it cost us uh, the film. Mm -hmm. And we could have made a great shadow film. Uh, I think, you know, in this day and age, I would love to make a, if I could find a streaming service daring enough, I would love to do a period shadow in black and white except for red oh, oh yeah. sick that'd be yeah. awesome um i don't know if there's one bold and daring enough that would let us do it but now conde nast owns the rights they pulled it back from all of its different sources oh. pulled back the comic book licenses the reprinting of the pulp licenses they had um some writers of james patterson's do a modern day shadow novel that um you may have seen some of the fan reaction on the internet. Um, I won't say anything about it. We were working on a Doc Savage movie with Shane Black, fabulous writer-director in The Rock. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes things get made and sometimes things don't get made for <laughs> all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's what the business is like. You've got your hits and misses. In my 46-year career, I'm... Uh, I'm probably somewhere just slightly north of 400. And mm. I keep Jeez. bemoaning the six out of the 10 that didn't get made. And then I have friends tell me, are you kidding? As a baseball player batting 400, you would be a superstar. Mm. But it's not so much about the 400. It's about the 600, uh, that percentile. Um, and a lot of them still hurt. But, you know, you move on and you keep moving. And sometimes, you know, the world comes around full circle, so you never know. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's also kind of why uh, a lot of times we like to highlight some of the stuff that didn't get made. Because sometimes we're just like, eh, it's kind of good that it didn't. But other times we're just like, man, that would have been awesome. Yeah, in, been our, in our next session, remind me to tell you about the Green Lantern movie I've written a treatment for. Oh, oh man. Yes, we'll do. Mm -hmm. be great. Way, 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 way before... The folks who did that Green Lantern movie and, <laughs> uh, had a twinkle in their eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was different. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, so I'll just take this from uh, let's, to wrap things up. Tell us about your latest book, Batman's Batman, and the upcoming Broadway play you have in the works. Well, yeah, as Stanley always used to caution me, he said, Michael, whenever you see an opportunity to get the plug in, get the damn plug in. Mm-hmm. So um, my two books, my two memoirs, The Boy Who Loved Batman and Batman's Batman are now available. Uh, Amazon Books, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, dot com. Uh, the audiobook versions are also available, uh, mm-hmm. which I narrate. Isn't, I don't even know if narrate is the right word, uh, which were a lot of fun. Let me lull you all to sleep at night. Uh, <laughs> my life and my career. I have an, um, I have you on Audible for Batman's Batman. It was fantastic. <laughs> very, very, very happy with these books and the reaction that we've gotten. And now, um, The Boy Who Loved Batman is being developed as a Broadway play. Nice. By the Niederlander Organization of New York City, which owns about half the theaters in Broadway. And we have a spectacular, spectacular director and writer uh, who we just announced uh, at San Diego Comic-Con. And everybody's working full tilt on this thing. It's very exciting. They think in this post-COVID era, which has a new normal for Broadway, this is the type of story they want to tell about passion, about perseverance and commitment. And about what it takes to make your dreams come true today when you have no money, no connections, don't know the right people, don't have relatives who are the right people. How do you make your dreams come true? And that's what the story of the boy who loved Batman really was all about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, it's poignant, it's entertaining. And uh, we, we have lots of uh, high hopes for it. And I hope by the end of 2023, uh, we'll be seeing its debut on Broadway. Nice. Awesome. I'll have to fly over and uh, check that out because I definitely want to see that. Both of these books I would recommend to our audience very highly because this is basically the bread and butter that we we talk about on this podcast is the development right. of a lot of these. Uh, Boy, I Love Batman, of course, continues the breakdown that Michael gave us on the journey it took to Batman 89. Batman's Batman should appeal to our audience just from the sheer number of unmade projects that you talk about in there. You talk about the shadow in there. You talk about Doc Savage, you talk about um, a little Ranger TV show, the first version of Shazam, which also was the first to propose the idea of Dwayne Johnson being Black Adam, like all of those, uh, as well as the Green Lantern film you just mentioned, a lot of those are, are detailed in this book. So make sure to check that out. Um, Michael Hughes, and thank you very much for coming on to the show. We yes, might not you. be making Batman movies right now, but we'd like to think that we're, we're continuing the legacy of, that you started of educating people on comic books on superheroes, on superhero movies. Uh, you are always welcome to come on the show to share your stories. Thank oh, yeah. you guys very, very much. You know, I appreciate having the opportunity to talk to people who are as deeply passionate about all this stuff as I am and deeply knowledgeable about it. Um, in, in The Boy Who Loved Batman, uh, what I found from the book, and I hope to bring Broadway, is the fact that all of us are the boy who loved Batman or the girl who loved Batman. <laughs> That's right. Batman, that everybody will be able to see not just me in this, but them as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've all had these same passions, and it means so much to us. And at the end of the day, what the comic books have given us, what I hope the movies, the animation, the TV have on a broader sense given us, and what the fans through the sites, through social media, through podcasts, have given us 
along with the comic book conventions, are a sense of community. And I think that's the heart and soul of what we're all doing and what we're all talking about and why we all get together and why this all matters to uh, each one of us. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, collecting comic books, reading comic books was the most isolating hobby you could ever imagine. I didn't know there was anyone else on the planet Earth who was so into comic books like me. It was almost subversive um, with the comics. But now having a, a global community is amazing. And as I said at the end of one of these two books, uh, the geeks have inherited the earth, and uh, right. and I, uh, I am so happy about that. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. And with that, that is superhero stuff you should know. All right, big thanks to our assistant, Dan, for gathering the visuals for this YouTube experience. And as a quick uh, post-credit sequence, we have this submitted to us by our patron, Logan Wood. It is from British Comics Magazine Speakeasy uh, that claims that, uh, basically, this is a nice uh, time capsule from 1989 saying that, hey, they're going to rep- they're going to shoot the first two Batman films back to back. The, se- the sequel to 89 is going to have the Riddler, and there is a scrap script with Riddler, Penguin, and the Catwoman fighting in a gang war clearly all this stuff was true (laughs) Uh, also claims that billy d williams is signed to a three-picture contract as harvey dent when he's on record being like no i just had one that's uh it's obviously true if it's written down so yeah yeah, of course yeah (laughs) so uh yeah just just goes to show some things have not changed (laughs) uh Onto the comments. So Camden uh, followed up with us about that I Love Gotham City shirt saying prop store has pictures of the shirt online and there's a button of the design as well. It's honestly not that great. It makes an error of stating tricentennial instead of bicentennial. Uh, this is actually because in the original script, it was, well, I mean, Camden probably knows this, but it was supposed to be the Gotham City's 300th anniversary, not mm. the 200th. Uh, and then they changed it, but I guess they didn't change the uh, some of the props. So uh, you can get that at the prop store, but also one of our um, fans, Joey, has this available uh, as well. We can put that on the uh, in the, the links in the, the, uh, <clears throat> in the show notes. Uh, as well so uh, if you want to check those out get a shirt of your own that'd be really cool i kind of like the idea that the, it's the tricentennial instead because it's like a, it's a tangible thing from the sam ham uh 1986 draft rather than what's in the movie uh cool. brandon spain says would it be possible if one day you guys did videos of reading scripts based on the unmade batman movies entirely of guests appearing in each video that would be really fun to see especially the batman 3 script uh, i imagine by the bachelors is what you mean uh i mean that'd be great obviously when it comes to the guys who were part of it for batman returns we already have their audio so we could just splice that in if need be uh on that but uh yeah i think it just depends on um, the more relationships we form with the actors who were involved the more people we get from the original stuff the the more special it's going to be so i think that'd be awesome though mm-hmm. uh will on our daniel waters interview says damn you guys just keep coming out with these excellent podcasts it's criminal that you guys don't have more subscribers we agree. <laughs> right, we agree. We want you to tell all your friends about us. <laughs> Come on. Let's get to it, Will. It's a call to action. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, look, we're on we're on the we're on the way up. We've seen a lot of um, you know, growth. Uh, but yeah, it'd be great if we were getting 10, 20, 30,000 listeners per uh episode, episode and and you know, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh all right, on to the shout outs. All right. Yeah. Thank you for those comments, everybody. And we want to thank our supporters who are 
Uh, let's see who's kind of new-ish. Uh, let's start with, um, I'll start with Decade VV, Josh M, Benjamin V, Chris F, Michael S, Meta Geek, Chuck, ATWT, Yuli, Chris R, and Chris M. These are some of the newcomers that are up on the board. Some have been here for a little bit, but they're new-ish. And everybody else that's uh, our some of them are pretty mainstay and, and, and our other supporters as well. Thank you for that. Uh, please join the $1 tier to get onto the board to get you the shout out, <clears throat> be it oral or visual. And mm -hmm. uh, that's at patreon.com slash superhero stuff pod. $5 tier gets you the whole other show. This show is every Monday, but uh, the $5 tier gets you a whole other show every Friday and uh, you can pay five bucks and binge the whole thing. We're up to like, what was it? 126, I think, behind the paywall now. So oh, as yeah. of as of this recording. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, get a whole lot of bang for your buck there if you want to um, not continually pay $5. But if you do, that's great too as well, of course. Yeah. Uh, and $10 tier monthly meetup. Meet up with us monthly and we have a topic to discuss or something to react to all together in a Zoom-like call. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that gets you also the $1 and $5 tier benefits as well. So please join us there. And then also we got our merch at Redbubble at superhousepod.redbubble.com and superhero stuff pod.threadless.com. Ben man, Zacula indeed wizard mug, shirt, shower curtains, all the rest. This artwork currently is from Stefan Santa Cruz and this please send us some audio. Uh, any kind of bumper, any anything at all, really, to superhousepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Thunderwolf Drew on Instagram and Twitter. Thunderwolf Lives is the other thing, other my other uh, interests, my other channel, if you will, on mm -hmm. uh, YouTube. Thunderwolfdrew.com has my whole my whole portfolio in one place, except for amanorecon.com. That's A-M-A-N-O-R-E-C-O-N.com. Basically, ele elevator pitch for this one is R-rated Power Rangers meets X-Files. You mix those together, you got a horror comedy, and uh, yeah, it's uh, basically this is a passion project of mine. It's uh, see the 17-second teaser at amanorecon.com. Going to release a four-minute pitch video, campaign video for Indiegogo at some point soon. This artwork is by Zachary Jackson Brown. Ben? Uh, shout out to Comic Capital on Instagram as well as the Everything Entertainment Club on Clubhouse. You can check us out on social media on Twitter at Superhouse Pod, uh, Instagram Superhero Stuff Pod. What am I looking at? TikTok Superhero Stuff Pod. <laughs> what is this one again? Superhero, Superhero Stuff Pod. <laughs> uh, my website is benwanrider.com where you can check out Gotham Vampire, where Bruce faces off against the Mad Monk from the 1939 comics, as well as Elementary, The Death of Sherlock Holmes, uh, a modern update on The Adventure of the Dying Detective, uh, as well as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Disneyland, where Larry gets to go to Disneyland in the one Curb episode they could never really make. Uh, check out my YouTube channel in the description below, as well as Doctor Who, The Ronin of Time, a video I have there where I write, narrate, and edit, uh, in which the Eighth Doctor meets Miyamoto Musashi in ancient Japan. Uh, you can check out my Instagram at Ben Juan Ryder. My son's Instagram, my cat, Alfie, is at Alfie Pennyworth Cat. He's been peacefully sleeping during this entire interview. Uh, and uh, if you have an Alfie yourself or a peanut or any sort of cat, then you can also get the Whisker Box, the only cat box with a crazy cat lady and gent. And if you don't have a cat, but you have a dog instead, that's cool, too, because you can get the Bark Box. Y'all give your dog exactly what they want. With the Bark Box, you can get the first month off free, valued at $35. You can get that 
basically using our promo link in the description below as well as in our show notes. And you can get that at superherostuffpod.com slash shop where you can get all sorts of stuff, including your own Funko Keaton, uh, including the Boy Who Loved Batman uh, as well. We should include that link uh, specifically in our show notes. Mm. Uh, a lot of good foresight we had when putting that one on there. <laughs> it, oh yeah, it's, it's already there. I was yeah. like, there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We uh, we knew this was going to happen <laughs> when we put that on. Uh, but yeah, and other than that, Manscaped Woo! get twenty percent off plus free shipping by using the promo code Johnson's Ballsack at Manscaped.com. Guys, this is a real promo code. This is not some joke we put in. I've been asked <laughs> a little bit. This is a real promo code. You can use this on anything. No, it's real. It they <laughs> let us do this. <laughs> That's great. I love that. They're like, That's a joke, right? But no, it's a, it's a real thing. Use this it. is 100% real, actually. Yes, it's right. 20% off and free shipping using the actual real code Johnson's ball sack. I love it. This code is the gift that keeps on giving and give your balls a gift of yes. being freed from hair. <laughs> and, you know, your bush covering your shaft. You want to make your dick seem bigger. Okay. Uh, it also has other products outside of that. So if you're fine having that bush, if you know your your spouse <laughs> or whoever you're with, your partner really likes it, then that's cool. You can use this on anything else. They got the weed whacker, which is for your nose hairs. They've got uh, basically deodorants and boxers. They got all sorts of shit. So make sure not to just be like, eh, I don't need that stuff. You might need something else. So check that out. Go to manscaped.com. Use our promo code Johnson's Ballsack on anything to get 20% off plus free shipping. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And uh, yeah, totally real. <laughs> not, that's not a bit. <laughs> that is real. Um, and you know, we want you to do us a favor. We want you to tell all your friends about us. listening to the Geekscape Network.